The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to You're Gonna Love Me, the podcast where we open the eyes, the ears, and the hearts of anyone who has judged or been judged. Well, hopefully. I'm your host, Katie Maloney. All right, so this episode, um, I've been so excited for it. I feel like it's been a long time in the making. I have Alexis Haynes on, formerly known as Alexis Nyers. You may remember her from a show. It was a reality show on the E! channel called Pretty Wild, and it was wild. Alexis has had an incredible journey. I read her book. It's called Recovering from Reality. She also has a podcast here on Dear Media called Recovering from Reality as well. And I mean, I I sat down and just like consumed the entire book in one sitting. I, you know, I had only ever seen her on the reality show and she's become immortalized in pop culture because of Sofia Coppola's The Bling Ring. She was involved in some Hollywood robberies, which she talks about all in her book. But I mean, just from the time she was young, dealing with, you know, sexual abuse and and drug use. And I just, I was blown away reading her story and especially where she is now working in recovery for uh, addictions. Her entire story is just so compelling. But yeah, I definitely had to ask her about when she called Nancy Joe. You might have seen that. Nancy Joe, this is Alexis Nyers calling. I mean, that scene is just, it's so perfect. I, I don't think there's ever been a scene in any reality show that has quite matched that. Well, I won't get too into it because I'll just let the interview roll. So let's get into it. Alexis, I'm really, really, really excited to talk to you today. So I read your book. In one sitting, I read this and I like, I earmarked it like crazy and I like underlined stuff because it was just, it was so, it was so good and so powerful and heartbreaking. And I, I cried when I read it. I mean, it was just, it was really, really touching Um, because I did not know anything about your real life. I mean, I watched Pretty Wild when it came out on E! Gosh, a decade ago. But that really wasn't the reality. So reading your book like was really, truly eye-opening. Just so much going on. And then, of course, after I read the book, I was like, well, now I need to go back <laughs> and rewatch it because like with just, you know, a, a new perspective on it all. And it was just even more heartbreaking because you were so young. You were just like a baby. And I just, I, I, I definitely when I watched it the first time around, I was like, okay, I never could have guessed that you were completely just strung out on all kinds of drugs. And like, that's just completely wild to me that you functioned like that. Where to begin? Um, I guess we can start with the show because that was like my kind of first introduction to you. I know when you talked about in your book that this was like, felt like it was so the thing that you'd been waiting for your entire life, you and your mom would do like chanting or praying for affirmation. affirmation. Yes, affirmation. 
And so then, so then this opportunity comes to you and right when it does, everything sort of hits the fan. Yeah. And I talk about this a lot. And a lot of the work that I do now is with subconscious belief systems. And so manifesting is amazing. And saying affirmations is an, an incredible tool. And at the same time, if you have undealt with subconscious belief systems and trauma, those will always supersede whatever you're trying to bring into your life. So it's interesting because prior to us getting the show, my sisters, my mom and I would come together every morning. I believe it was either 30 or 60 days before we actually got picked up. And we would say this affirmation that we're working in the entertainment industry, earning X number of dollars. We ended up making that exact dollar amount with the intention of serving humanity, right? Like with that intention. And so it's interesting because we got the show. It was the exact dollar amount. But what was happening in my personal life was I had a horrible drug addiction. And so did my sister. Not only just drug addiction, but years and years of trauma, early childhood sexual abuse, um, and rapes, and an abusive father. I can't, like, that was so crazy to read about that. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was definitely, there was just so much undealt with trauma. And so it's interesting because I always say if you don't deal with your stuff like it deals with you you know what I mean like eventually all of things start to bubble up to the surface so in the moment so we get this show and we get the exact dollar amount and then on the second day of filming I get arrested and so you're thinking like Alexis obviously that affirmation didn't work because you said with the intention of helping the planet and the people on it and here I am 10 years later doing that so that moment, the way that that all transpired had to transpire the way that it did for me to end up here today. So it's at the end of the day, the affirmation did come true. But yes, we would get together every morning. We would say this affirmation. We all had our own individual spiritual practices. That was kind of a part of the original show premise was like we were the crunchy alternative version of the Kardashians. <laughs> crunchy. And so... Yeah, we were like these like crunchy hippie people that were like also really wanting to be, you know, my sister wanted to be in Playboy and whatever. You know, we were like living this really dual existence. And so, yeah, when I was filming that show, it's interesting because you said I would have never guessed that you were doing drug addiction. And yeah, we just hit it so well. Like my addiction, those drugs at the time were my medicine. So I did whatever it took to be able to continue to use. So I was really cautious about the way I used when we were filming. Did anyone suspect? Yeah, the production eventually caught us and caught on and started to become, because that's the thing, like with more money came more drugs, more partying, more unreliability, all of the behaviors that come with an addiction, right? So it just, it, it, it wasn't so much me, it was more, Tests that became really difficult. You know, she didn't want to show up to filming and she couldn't wake up on time and all of the things. So, 
Speaking of tests, sorry, just one thing I like, as you were talking, I was just had to say, when I found out that she wasn't your actual biological sister, I was shocked because you guys really look so much, you look like actual sisters. When we actually started working in Hollywood, we lied to everyone and said that we were twins, that we were fraternal. And that's kind of how every we would get these people to like fall in love with us because we were so fun, so vivacious and had so much energy. And we were like, we came up with this whole elaborate lie about how we were these 20 year old twins. Really, we were 17, maybe even 19, 17 and 18 years old. And yeah, we lived that like Hollywood life off of this lie. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. And I'm Andana Dayani. We decided to create a podcast to introduce you to the people who inspire us most. These are the dissenters. The people who just made a decision one day to break down the establishment and build a new one. In the greatest times of grief or even the most ordinary of circumstances, many heroes will rise. You just have to take that first step. So please tune in. We can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. There are heroes everywhere. Discover them. Become one. So many people do that. I remember watching and being thinking like, I wonder if our paths ever had crossed because like you would go to all the same places I remember going to, like whether it was like, you know, like Beso and like all the, all the spots, all of the spots. The same kind of cast of characters who were pretty trouble. And, you know, but, but so many people lied about who they were, what they had, what they were doing, where they came from. So... It wasn't that far fetched. <laughs> and no, even no, and that's the thing is like we knew how to play the game. I may have not been the most book smart kid, but I think because of the amount of trauma that I had been through at the time, um, it like made me grow up in a in a, a certain sense from a really young age. And I like I knew how to work it. I knew how to work a room, I knew how to work people, I knew how to manipulate people to get what I wanted. Like I knew how to do it. And so, and I think my dad, so my dad was a, um, a director of photography. He was on Friends and The Nanny and all of those 90s and early 2000s sitcoms. So I grew up on set. I know how people in LA like smooth over each other. And like, <laughs> you know, I think I just picked up on it and it was really so we started modeling and I was like, how are we going to get the most gigs? And I was like, we're going to tell everybody that we're twins, that we're fraternal twins. And we're just going to go out there and just tell everybody this whole elaborate story. And it worked. I mean, that's how we started booking jobs. It's a good gimmick, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you start doing this show but and, and and doing a reality show, I know it's 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 hard and it's tough as it is, and a lot of people don't think that it is, but it it can it really can be. It's very draining and emotionally taxing filming a show when it is you know your life and everything that you're putting out there and your real relationships. But on top of that, you are looking at some real jail time, and that's something so serious. And also being eighteen, so just barely an adult 
And so how do you like, I don't even know how you undertake something like that with that sort of looming over you. Like how, how would you like show up and go get your nails done and like not be falling apart? Drugs? Yeah, drugs. (laughs) (laughs) So my drug of choice was heroin. Um, I loved opiates. And so for me, opiates both numbed me mentally and physically. So I was able to really shut down those emotions and don't get me wrong. I mean, it was kind of, the whole show was kind of like a shit show of my big emotions, but like I still somehow kept it together. And the only thing that was helping me keep it together was my substance use. And I mean, I was a trash can for all drugs, but I mean, at that period of my life, that's kind of when, um, I was really relying heavily on opiates and there was times where I was trying to control the addiction and to use less or I'm not going to shoot up. I'm only going to smoke heroin. I'm only going to do it four times a day. I'm not going to like, you know, like there was all of this bullshit that I was trying to do, but really it was a mess. Yeah. I don't talk about this very often because it's like, I never want to think, Oh, poor me. I mean, the bottom line is, like I was certainly not the bling ring mastermind, but um, I absolutely played a role and I take full responsibility for that role. But I was left with like a lot of trauma. I mean, I became the face of bling ring because of my show and because of that Vanity Fair article. And despite the fact that I had such a little, little involvement actually with the bling ring. And so I'm facing all of the scrutiny. I mean, I mean, I don't even know how I would have dealt with it on social media. I mean, you guys, not you specifically, but your cast just went through this huge, like, moment, right? Like, you just have this huge, like, call-out, big moment, like, cancel moment, right? Like, that type of moment. And you're on social media in the heat of that. Like, that would have broken me. I did not have – social media was not a thing back then. So it's like when I was – back to my little hotel room at the best Western, which is where I was living at the time and would smoke some heroin with my drug addict friends, everything would go away, you know, and there was still, still print media. I mean, I was all over the dirty.com and TMZ and all of these things all the time, but I could still like retreat and, you know, go into my like cave and have that space. You guys don't have that. Yeah, you but know, you have I did. you you had like paparazzi on your ass all the time, right? You, you guys don't. I don't no, know. I they don't. I I could literally walk past a a gaggle of them on the street, and they would not even pay any mind toward me. Yeah, but that, that but, was definitely intense. But the internet trolls on Twitter and Instagram are you know they're very loud <laughs> and very proud. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I was definitely, like, I've had to process a lot of trauma from that experience because I was 18, because I was addicted to drugs, and because I was fighting a case on national television. And there was, there was a lot of scrutiny. There was a lot of shame that I felt and a lot of guilt and pain. But you just do what you have to do to survive. And so for me, my addiction got much worse, which is why I ended up taking a plea deal because I could not fight my case any longer. And, and it ended up being, and I say this a lot and people are always like, that's crazy, but it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me. Like going to jail, what it saved my life. 
And I honestly wouldn't have had it way. That must have been so scary though. When I read that portion in your book, just talking about just sitting there alone. And then was it the second time you went back when like you lost control of your intestines and your bowel basically and and then had to just like sit in it for a day yeah no we definitely talk jail war stories um which is actually something that i haven't talked about very much because a lot of people are like i don't really want to let's just like skip over that part no so my first time going in when i surrendered so i took a plea deal and then i end up you go back and you surrender yourself to the court and they take you and you go to I was going to, at the time, Linwood um, Correctional Facility. I knew that I was going to have to kick. I'd tried kicking drugs before. I was clearly unsuccessful. Uh, So I ended up trying to to kind of taper myself down before I went into jail. So the first time I went to jail, I, I had to kick drugs still, but it wasn't nearly as bad as um, the second time, because what ended up happening was I went to jail that first time and I could clearly see. So you spend a summer in jail in isolation. I was in protective custody. So 23 out of 24 hours a day, you're in a cell by yourself. You never see any other humans except for guards. Um, and the trust slides food through your door every morning. And so, and then the one hour you do get out, it's like to shower and like maybe call a family member and then back up to your cell. And so it became really apparent to me, like drugs are absolutely a problem. Like you can't continue to use heroin. It's an issue. But I didn't realize that like I was an alcoholic or an addict. I like no one in my family had been to rehab. No one's been to AA, despite the fact that addiction is like rampant. Nobody had tried to take care of their shit. So um, I just got out and thought, oh, I'll for sure, I'll be able to stay sober. It's, I'm fine. And I wasn't. Within two weeks, I was back to using. And so when I was arrested the second time, I ended up having to kick cold turkey after shooting up heroin for two months. Like, it was a brutal detox. And, yeah, it wasn't ugly. And I, and I questioned when I was writing that portion of the book, like, should I talk about this? <laughs> is this something people really need to know? But I think it is because one, I'm always, I'm so transparent about every aspect of my life. Um, but I just want people to understand like the, the conditions like drug addicts are people who need help. Like we usually we're quite mentally ill. We have tons of trauma. No one should be detoxing like that in jail um, at all. And so, yeah, I shared that experience. It was horrendous. And yeah, I woke up in the middle of the night to me and, and that's part of the opiate detox literally shitting myself and projectile vomiting at the same time. And um, I could not, I would kept buzzing them um, to try to get help. No one would come and help me. Um, I had no cleaning supplies, nothing to clean myself up. I couldn't take a shower until my next hour out. I had no clean clothes. I had to beg for them to bring me new clothes Um, Because you only get one outfit, a couple pairs of underwear, and a couple pairs of socks for the week. No one, I'm sorry, I don't care if you're the worst criminal 
on the planet, you deserve a clean pair of clothes and like to not be, you know what I mean? Like if you're sick like that and you're calling for help, like you deserve help. To not sit in your own shit and vomit. <laughs> vomit. Yeah. And like yeah. no one should have to be like sitting oh there, you know, like in the midst of a detox on a cot, freezing cold, that ill, you know? And that's one of the most like demoralizing moments of my life. And it's okay. I look back at it now, but yeah, no, I don't think anybody should be treated like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very inhumane because you did talk about um, the justice system and, and, and how um, it's set up to punish people, but there's people that can still buy their freedoms and there's people that still can walk free from doing the things that they've done. And, you know, there's other people who are paying for things that they've, you know, hadn't done or had to do to survive. And because, because already the system is against them and, you know, cause minorities, it's horrible. Yeah. Criminal justice reform is something that I'm really passionate about for first and foremost, I, I always preface this with the fact that every person's savable. Like, I don't care what you've done in your life that you feel the, you know, anybody who's listening, who's like, I'm the biggest piece of shit in the world. And they feel like they've done the worst things ever. I'm here to tell you that it's okay. And that we can, and we do recover. And that personal freedom is totally possible from like the bondage of your pain and from the pain that you've caused others. And so that's really my message. And so when we look at, yeah, the human inhumane practices of just the criminal justice system and, and the for-profit prison industry and the bail system. And yeah, it, it's something that honestly, I get the chills every time I talk about it because I do, I I talk about in the book, like if I had been a black girl who was caught robbing a house, I wouldn't have gotten six months with probation. I would have gotten the three years that they require. The reason I got that six months is because I could afford a $150,000 attorney you know what I mean? And like all of the things and, and I don't six months, even with a crooked cop on my case and all of these things that like, I could have gone to trial and like had the six months of attorney and just, I, I probably could have gotten probation. So yeah, I think that talk about trauma and, and just generational trauma and the way that we're traumatizing minorities and communities of color with our current criminal justice system, it's it's astounding. Like when you actually start going down that rabbit hole, it just, it breaks your heart. And I'll never forget the mama of my cell block, this amazing, beautiful Latina woman. I, I had just gone into Linwood for the first time and I didn't know anything. I didn't know about commissary. I didn't know that you didn't have shower shoes or soap or any, you don't get anything. Nothing. You're everything. So you get your one outfit, a couple pairs of underwear, a couple pairs of socks, and a sheet and a blanket. And that is it. And I didn't know how everything worked. I was scared and I'd never been to jail before. And there was this amazing woman who 
came to my cell, um, I was about two days in and she realized that I hadn't gone down for a single shower or left my room. And she came and explained to me how commissary worked. Commissary, it's your ability to basically buy supplies, um, which is another issue. Like you shouldn't have to buy shower shoes. You shouldn't, those are things that should be provided. Like you shouldn't have to buy certain things that you have to in there. There's just basic human decency. You're already like locked away from civilization and you're already, you're um, already stripped of every other freedom. So give them shower shoes, give them a pillow, give, you know, yeah, like, they can shower so they don't get infections in their feet from the shower. Like, come on. But she was so sweet and she came up to my room and she gave me a Bible and she said, honey, I, I'll be praying for you. And if you want to borrow my shower shoes, here you go. And also you can order commissary on Tuesdays. And I was like, what's commissary? And she's like, well, you can have your family or someone put money on your books and you can get some extra food and a pair of shower shoes for yourself. And so there's another privilege right there. I had family who could afford to put $30 on my books. So that way I could go get extra food and shower shoes and all the things. As I started to get to know this woman, though, I we ended up talking. We had the forbidden talk about what are you in here for? Everyone already knew what I was in there for. But you, when you go in you're not supposed to ask other people, you know what I mean? What are you in here for? And I began to get to know the other women in my cell block. And the vast majority were in there and had been in there for years fighting cases because they couldn't afford bail. They had babies, families that were ripped apart. This woman specifically was pulled over with her uh, boyfriend or the father of her child. And he uh, was a known drug dealer. And when they arrested them, they arrested them together. And she went in with him at the same time. Her parents are taking care of her kids. She can't afford bail. So now these parents, these children have no, they don't have parents. They don't have parents. And the dad's going away for dealing drugs, which that we can go down a whole nother rabbit hole of why I think we should decriminalize all drugs. That's a story for another time. Uh, This is a perfect example of how the system is literally literally working against people. Now, there's no doubt in my mind the Jeff Epsteins of the world should have no bail. But we have a system that targets minorities and people of color and is literally breaking up communities. And the reason that they're targeted is because they live in poor communities that are over-policed, and then we can go down the whole conversation of police reform. But being in there was kind of like that initial spark of the the activist in me, I guess you would say, like where I'm like, this is clearly fucked up. And it took many more years for me to like fully wake up to what is actually going on and what's been going on since even before the inception of this country. But yeah, it's astonishing. Wow. Well, I think you having experienced it firsthand, you would definitely be somebody that could like really champion for change there. I've definitely like started to educate myself more on, you know, for-profit prisons and 
how the certain communities are over-policed now that um, we're talking about defunding the police and what that means and what that looks like. And so just, I recommend everybody do that because you will be shook when you find out some of the things that are happening and that have been going on. Okay, I want to go back a little bit. Because I do, I do really want to talk about the bling ring. When it happened, I don't, I don't necessarily remember like turning on the news and reading about it or, you know, maybe I did, but I I mostly remember watching Pretty Wild and sort of then understanding like what was going on. But I didn't realize that, you know, until I read your book that, your involvement was very minimal, next to none, and but that you were just sort of kind of dragged to a house one night and didn't even really realize what was happening until it was happening around you. And then you partake. And then the next thing you know. Sparks a whole other conversation around media and press and the way that they twist things and the misogyny and reporting. And there's just this really interesting undercurrent of sexism and misogyny in the bling ring story, which I think was really missing the whole time. And I mean, back then the early two thousands were just such a different, I don't think that that would have, well, (laughs) that's not true. That's my, that's my um, positive thinking. I don't think that that would fly today. But yeah, I mean, just it's interesting in the way I, I really became the face of the bling ring because of my show. And it's interesting the way that sex sells and the way that the media depicts men and women. And this is really my issue with like the whole Nancy Joe article was not a way around the way that she spoke about the case. It was the way that she spoke about me and the way that she depicted me, which clearly sways public perception, right? So yeah, so that so Nick Prugo and Rachel Lee are two kids from Calabasas who in 2008 began robbing houses. And this was I didn't know Nick or Rachel um back then. Um it's interesting Rachel actually and she I didn't know her then. I didn't know her now. But she's actually the assistant to my hairstylist, which was very weird. Like I walked into my hairstylist for like this new hairstylist. And I was like, I heard you're really great with super thick hair. And um, he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So we like do like the prep sit down and um, he takes me over to the bowl and to get my hair washed. And he goes, my assistant's going to come and wash your hair and then bring you over to me. And I'm like, okay. And I lay back and I open my eyes and it's Rachel Lee standing over my head in the ball. But anyway, just said, hi, like, how are you? Because the thing is like, Rachel Lee was a traumatized child. Nick Prugo was a traumatized child. That does not excuse what happened. It's just, you can't talk about, you can't talk about crime period without talking about trauma and without talking about pain. That's just facts. You just can't. It doesn't excuse the behavior. It doesn't make it any better, but you have to look at the big picture. And if we want to stop crime, if we want to reduce crime, if we want to reduce addiction and all these things, we have to talk about trauma and pain. It's just the way that it is. But anyway, so there's young kids. I don't remember. I don't know whose idea it was to go and 
robbed Paris's house. But I know that at Paris's house back then, this was a different time where Paris was having lots of parties and there was all those people in and out. And it was just kind of this like known thing that the house was like open, right? Um, I even have some friends that like attended those parties and like after the fact told me this. So I'm sure they probably got this idea. We're just going to go to Paris Hilton's house. And what ended up happening was, I think probably for them that first night, it was it was like that dopamine hit, like that same thing you get from a drug, right? That like rush that comes with that. And, Ra- and Rachel Lee and Nick began to um, rob lots of houses. They robbed lots of houses and then they started adding people into this little crew of house robbers. Eventually it would turn into the bling ring. So that began in December of 2008 and in, um, in uh, March of 2009, I believe it was, was it 2008 or 2009. I don't remember. Whatever it was, they started in the winter, and then in the spring. That spring, I met Nick Prigo through my sister Tess, and yeah, I didn't know Rachel Lee. I, I, you know, aside from the fact that like we grew up in the same town and maybe had been to the same parties a few times, like these were not people. I didn't have their phone numbers. Same thing with like any of the other members, not people that I knew. But what ended up transpiring was Tess got kicked out of the house. And of course, when she got kicked out for using drugs and partying too hard, I was like, well, fuck you. I'm leaving too, mom. A lot of people also have this misconception that we bought the show because of the bling ring. We had the show before the bling ring. And so we had signed our contract with E. And a few weeks later, Tess gets kicked out and I leave with her and we go to Nick's. And then Tess ditches me for her boyfriend. That was a regular occurrence and led to love fights. And Nick and I went out partying. And at the time period in my addiction, I was smoking Oxys, snorting Xanax and drinking on a daily basis. The whole night and the whole experience was pretty fuzzy for me. And, and again, I have no desire to like downplay my involvement. I just like to make it really clear to people that I didn't rob Paris Hilton. I didn't rob Lindsay Lohan. I never robbed Adrena Patridge. I was never involved in any of those robberies. I was not involved in the planning of robbing Orlando Bloom's house. I just ended up there. And the rest is kind of pop culture history. For real, because then... After all that happens, then you have someone like Sofia Coppola coming to be like, um, I'm going to make a movie like this and really immortalize, you know, your likeness. And we're going to bring in Emma Watson, who's going to portray you. Like normally people would be like, oh, my God, that's amazing. But were you like, oh, my God, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that part's interesting. So we filmed the show. The whole Nancy Joe thing happens. And then she goes and writes the book, which is clearly inaccurate and she's since acknowledged the fact that she lied about my shoes and her portrayal of me and then but then she's very passive aggressively this year did a follow-up piece of bling ring where are they now and she only talked about me and none of the other members again i have a weird feeling she's like obsessed with me anywho she writes this book and i'm already sober at this point so go to jail get out go back to jail that's now the winter of 2010 and I am so desperate for money. I'm about to file for bankruptcy. Uh, I have nothing. I'm in rehab on a scholarship. I literally, I was like, how am I going to put myself through school? I have no idea. 
I get myself enrolled in school, life starts to get better. I'm like in AA, working a program in rehab. And then right before I hit a year sober is when Sofia Coppola's company reached out to me. And they're like, we want to make this movie and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And honestly, I didn't even think that much about it. I just needed the money and was like, yeah, I had no idea Emma Watson was going to play me. My mom was acting as my momager and kind of like forced me to do it because she needed the money. We all needed the money. And so I sold my life rights for three years. So that way I could survive. And with that money, I paid to go and elope with my husband in Mexico. And I got us our first little tiny apartment and all of our furniture from living spaces and like, like eating box mac and cheese. You know what I mean? And it's crazy because right when the movie came out, all of a sudden I had paparazzi at my apartment and I had just given birth to my baby and I had a really traumatic birth with her. And, um, and it traumatized me. Like, I was like, I don't want to be in the media space anymore. When I got sober, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to walk away because I had seen so many people come before me who had gone to promises or a big treatment center and gotten sober or attempted to, and then they're back out And I knew that if I went back out, I would die. And it wasn't really until about two years ago that I finally was like, okay, I have enough sobriety under my belt and I have something to say. And so we're going to move back into the media world. But up until then, I was like, I want to have nothing to do with this anymore. I just wish it would really all go away. I, that I can completely understand that. I mean, I, I like, again, like the amount of media press scrutiny that was just constantly focused on you on top of being, you know, serving jail time and on top of a lifetime of trauma and abuse. That is a lot of weight for one person to, to carry that. I don't know how someone bounces back from that, but you did. And reading your story was like, really like inspiring. Like, like, I think you're a very remarkable person, but uh, Nancy Joe sucks, but that's, <laughs> I, I will say, and, and the only reason why I'm going to bring it because you said that you can now laugh at it because the scene of you calling her is like the best things in reality TV history. If anyone hasn't watched pretty wild, there's a, <laughs> a scene where after the, the, after the vanity fair article comes out, because you're so excited because you thought that you were going to finally tell like your side and you were going to be portrayed in, in a new light and have, you know, maybe be a, like cleared from all this a little bit. And then it sh- certainly wasn't, but it was mainly about the fact that she wrote that you wore six inch Louboutins when you were wearing little brown BB shoes. And your mom kept <laughs> interrupting you, which was like, she was like, you lied. And you're like, shut up, mom. And then you, you're like, Nancy Joe, this is Alexis Nyers. And you're crying and it's so sad. And then she interrupts again and she goes, $29 or something like that. And you're like, shut up. I mean, it is like. It's perfect. The music, the editing, the whole thing with Nancy Joe um, and that thing. It wasn't about the shoes. It was about, it was about her like overall clearly like, like she clearly had a vendetta against me. Like it's very apparent in all of her tweets, the way that she like blocks people all the time who bring it up to her. It's a sore spot. 
And it was about just the fact that when all of the shit started hitting the fan with my, with my show and the case, my attorney was like, you're not to speak to anybody. And he picked Nancy Joe out of the hundreds of media requests we were getting every day because she portrayed herself as a mother who is fair and balanced, who cared about the story and the situation. And so when she blatantly lied about me and depicted me in that manner, when I wasn't allowed to do any other press, that was it. That was my shot to kind of have any say. We didn't have Instagram back then, okay, about my truth. Right. Which is that I wasn't at Paris Hilton's house. I mean, everybody still, I still get messages from people like you brought Paris Hilton. No one fucking didn't. And Paris, can we just make up and be friends, please? I have nothing ill against you. And I hope that you don't against me. God bless you. You're iconic. But the point is, (laughs) she truly is. The point is this, like, She was nasty. She was nasty. It was a low blow. You know what I mean? And it was just filled with lies and bullshit. And like, I lost my cool for sure. (laughs) I mean, what a snake. She, she definitely knew what to say just to, to get that interview with you. The show knew how to edit it to make it look extra bad, right? Because we spent days together, Nancy, Joe, and I, days doing it, multiple days. And so they put all of this, these clips together of me just talking about surface level bullshit, but they didn't put together the part about me loving my family and me being scared and you know, my side of the whole thing and how it's transpiring and what little I did know. And the fact that she, she didn't put in the fact that I called the police when the surveillance video started to surface of him and Rachel at all of these houses. Like it just really, yeah, she did me dirty. Social media would have been helpful back then because you could have just tweeted out, been like, yo, I actually called the cops and like told them like, I didn't want this on me either. Everything transpired the way that it needed to. And I have no, like, I don't feel like, oh, if only this or that. But I say that. And then I've also said this, and this is true, that that moment that in some weird way, Orlando Bloom saved my life. And as a result of that moment transpiring and me going to jail and getting sober, I've now saved thousands of lives, right? Like literally thousands of lives. Like the people, not just the people who listen to my podcast every week. And I love you guys so much, but I own a drug and alcohol treatment center. Like this, I've like dedicated my life to this work now. And I literally get DMs every single day from beautiful people who are like, I decided to get sober because you inspired me that it was possible to not just get sober, but to have a fucking awesome life in sobriety. And that's a gift. So as a result of that moment, which was horrible and violating and I'm sure so scary and I can't even imagine that getting that call that something happened to your house and to your property and to feeling so violated 
especially as a celebrity, because you already feel violated all the time, right? Um, and scared about who you can trust and all of these things, right? And so all of that is horrible. And maybe there's some peace knowing that as a result, indirectly, he's saved lives, right? Like, I believe everything happens for a reason and you can't regret your past. You can't. You can't wish to shut the door on it. I don't know where I would be if that didn't hadn't have happened. I know that the way that I was using would have killed me many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. Would you ever do reality TV again and showcase like your life now? Yeah, I thought about it. And for the right show, yeah. Yeah, I would. So you know when you're here for a season and you're like, what the fuck is going on right now? This is crazy. And everyone, the production's trying to pin you against everyone, get you to say things that you don't know, and like all of this stuff. But then you begin to learn how to play the game. I would be okay now because I know how to play the game. So I don't know. If the right opportunity came along, probably. I think it would be really great to see like your life now and and what you're doing right now because you are doing amazing work because you're a husband who you met. So I was in AA. He was five years sober. I was newly sober. And um, when I was about mm, almost a year sober, nine or 10 months sober, we started dating. That's so sweet. In your book, you were saying that you saw in him what you wanted to be. And I thought that was so cute. Yeah. I mean, I am truly um, honored to be with such an incredible human being. And he makes me strive to be the best version of myself every day. Um, Yeah, I I would listen to him. Um, Day one of me going into treatment, we were required to go to AA meetings and we would go to the same one every afternoon and Evan would be there with his crew of friends and we're all still friends to this day, almost a decade later. I would just listen to the way that he talked and to the way that he was living his life. And I wanted that. I, it like, I was like, how after so much pain, my husband went through like a lot of early childhood trauma too. I mean, his mom committed suicide when he was 14 and um, a lot of alcoholism in his family and just lots of abuse. So yeah, I, I wanted it. I wanted the peace. I wanted the um, the self-esteem again. I wanted to feel good about myself. I wanted to help other people. And yeah, watching that group of friends that I still have today doing this program and living this, it's interesting. None of us go to AA anymore. <laughs> um, but then when we were heavily involved in it, like I just, I wanted that. I wanted that. I, and it and it made me want to keep coming back. Um, at the time, I didn't think, oh, he's going to be my husband one day. Uh, but it 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 inspired me, um, and it also taught me that good, safe men were out there because I didn't think any men were safe. I had so much trauma um, that for me, every single man was a threat. And when I would hear these men speak so vulnerably about their childhood and their lives and pain and their struggle, it and and 
how they get out of that pain, struggle, trauma, and their vulnerability left me feeling hopeful that that eventually there would be, you know, that there's that there are safe people out there, you know. And then now, so you you have your rehab facility that you opened. Is that where's that at? Yeah, we have locations all over Southern California. So we have in um, a facility that we're moving in network, which is in Mar Vista, um, right next to Marina Del Rey. And we have locations in Malibu and then also in Silver Lake. So yeah, we started as just like a small sober living in Malibu. And we felt this calling to take treatment in a different direction and to move away from this often really punitive approach and to focus on connection and not control and just meeting people where they're at and loving them unconditionally. And a lot of people go, oh, this sounds like you have horrible boundaries, but it's actually the opposite. We have had the most amazing experience um, kind of reimagining what treatment can look like for people. And it's treatment with humanity, you know, where we treat people with humanity and kindness, love, and respect. Firm boundaries. There's lots of boundary pushing uh, with people who are newly in sobriety. But yeah, it's worked for us. And it's honestly, I, I it's an honor and a privilege to do the work that we do. I feel so grateful that we have been able to be open for as long as we had. It's not an easy business at all. It's heartbreaking. It's gut-wrenching. It involves a lot of pain and also a lot of beauty and healing and transformation. You can't have one without the other um, is what I've found. Um, But it's emotionally taxing and often really difficult, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I love the way you talked about healing in your book. To me, it spoke about, you know, a lot of times finding, you know, yourself and beauty in like the true depths of despair, even, you know, you said one of the things is feeling your heart shatter over and over or falling in love with your husband in the middle of a fight. Just the way you talk about healing, I think is just really, it's true. And I think it's just being, being in your feelings and feeling your feelings truly and authentically. Yeah. I think that paragraph might be my favorite paragraph of the entire book. When I wrote it, I was bawling my eyes out. <laughs> I was, I was like, "This is the real stuff." That, yeah, my, I, I love the introduction to my book, and I, and I love that, you know, that pe- that part, like healing. Healing means getting. It means feeling your heart shatter over and over again, but it also means feeling your heart. You know, it means being able to be vulnerable and to be raw and to be okay with that and and to be okay with all of the messy parts of life because life is messy. It's interesting because I was listening to um, Glennon Doyle's new book, Untamed, which I'm a big fan of. And, and it's everything that I've known, right? But it's like she puts it in this package with a beautiful bow and just that. The way that she expresses herself is so 
wonderful, but she talks about ghosts and, and how we want to be these perfect women who have these perfect lives and we compare ourselves all the time to everybody else's perfection. And those people are ghosts. There's no such thing. And, and that life is beautifully messy and chaotic. It's painful. And it's also, you know, and that pain and that messiness and the beauty and the, and the chaos allows us to see and witness and feel the beauty of, of our existence. It's important. <laughs> but I mean, thank you so much for talking to me. I feel like um, it was really cool getting to know you better than what I knew or thought I knew, even sitting and watching your show and, and sort of enjoying that all, but, you know, and reading your book, but it was just really nice to actually get to sort of talk face to face, even though we're over zoom, everyone needs to listen to your podcast, which is recovering from reality, which is also the title of your book, which everyone really should read because it's just, you'll definitely blow through it in one sitting. Like I did. It's just really, it's really touching. Alexis is very inspiring and a remarkable woman. So I highly recommend. And then uh, where can people find you on social media? On Instagram, it's, it's Alexis Gaines, or you can follow along with us at Recovering From Reality. And um, that's where I spend most of my time. I developed a TikTok, but like... <laughs> Me too, but it's just for spectating. I just watch TikToks. I don't make them. So what's your TikTok? I think it's also it's Alexis Haynes, and I'm verified on there. And then I'm also on Twitter at it's Alexis Haynes. But I mainly spend time on Instagram. You know, if anybody out there needs help, they need mental health support or addiction, even if I can't take you at my treatment center, I always try to place people and provide as much support as possible. And then I also have an incredible online course, which is the Life Reset course. And it's all about all of the tools that I learned how to reset my life. So, oh, one more thing, because I keep forgetting to do that. It's been, it's been something I want to do consistently, but I've been inconsistent about it. So I like to do this thing called my rage text of the day because I have been known to rage text. But so it could be like something inanimate or of just person, place or thing. It could be anything that you would want to like send a rage text to. <laughs> doesn't have to be serious, but what would you send? I think that if I could have sent a rage text to anyone, it would be Jackie Schimmel style. I'm a big fan of Jackie Schimmel and the way that she passive aggressively is obnoxious to her husband via text message. And I would, in my goal, be able to text Joe. She could not delete me or block my phone number. And I would just text her, Nancy Joe, this is Alexis Nyers calling over and over and over and over and over. <laughs> Over and over and over and over and over again. And anytime that she blocked the number, I would just text it from another number. Do I'd be strategic? I'd put her number on social media, and then I would have everybody text her at the same time. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. That's cruel. That would be really funny, though. Um, it's evil, but it's funny. My rage text of the day is going to go to mosquitoes because I'm getting eaten. They're all over like my arms. I've got mosquito bites. I think there's a couple in my house that just like ravage me in my sleep that I can't find that I need to just smack and be done. So mosquitoes, go fuck yourselves. All right. Well, that will, that's going to do it for today, but thank you. All right. Later, everybody. Bye.
Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to subscribe, leave a rating and review. Follow along on social at Music Kills Kate and tune in next week for an all new episode. 